Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 129. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here wrapping up What the February with one of the most anticipated films. Which, which when you think WTF, this is definitely one that goes to the top of your list. I'd go so far as to say for many people, it actually exceeds Fuzzbucket. And that is 2002's The Country Bears. I say it exceeds Fuzzbucket because Fuzzbucket came out quite some time ago. It's a made-for-TV film that very few people had heard of. But when you see The Country Bears, and you see it came out in 2002, and it's obviously a very prevalent attraction in both domestic parks, you say WTF because I'm going to admit something to you. Until Disney Plus was released or was open to the public, I didn't know this movie existed. Really? And see, I thought you had seen it because of Don Henley. No. In spite of my love for the Eagles, I had never even heard of this movie. I had heard of it. I remember when it came out because I think that they had shot most of these movies back to back and planned for the release. This was actually the first of the attractions Mm -hmm. that they started turning into full length feature films. It was this, then Haunted Mansion and then Pirates. And spoiler alert, although I'm sure that you can guess because we picked this for what the February, the third time was a charm. It's amazing to me that they even got that far, although I would imagine that Pirates of the Caribbean was probably already well into production, may have even been in the can, and they were just doing the special effects, because I feel like this, followed by Haunted Mansion, if they weren't already financially invested and time, time-wise time invested in Pirates of the Caribbean, I don't think that project happens. Right. If I'm being completely honest with you. Right, and I'm... I'm almost positive Pirates would have taken the long, the longest to film. Right. So we've, we've discussed Pirates at Nauseam on this show. We've discussed Haunted Mansion and, and has, as to how on brand they are, where the Easter eggs lie with the attractions. And we're going to discuss that now with Country Bears. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms and more. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram and Etsy and search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co. for all of your straw charm needs. The country bears are broken up as of 1991, but their biggest fan, Barry, still loves them. It's not Barry, it's Barry. B-E-A-R-Y, as they let us know. Upon learning of his adoption, Barry runs away to Country Bear Hall where he can be different and fit in because he's a bear living amongst humans. Bing! He arrives to see that Country Bear Hall has fallen six years behind on their payments to the bank and is four days away from destruction. Barry tells the former manager of the Country Bears that they should put the band back together to have a concert and raise the 20000 that they need. I'm going to say that again. We're going to put the band back together to raise money to save a building. Where have we seen this before? 
To be fair, this did come first. No, it didn't. We're thinking of two different movies. Bing! Meanwhile, his parents have called the police to find Barry. Henry, who is the former manager of the Country Bears, eventually agrees to get the band back together, Elwood, and they board the Country Bear tour bus along with Rhodey, their former Rhodey. Oh boy, it's awfully on the nose. While Big Al is left to get the hall ready for the show. We see that Fred is working as a security guard at a soundstage, but he still plays his harmonica. To promote the show, they call Rip Holland, the man who stole the band from Henry, who agrees to the gig as he has also fallen from grace. We also learn that the Bears got their big break after beating a kid named Benny Bogswaggle at a talent show. We find that the next bear on their trail, Zeb, has taken to drinking heavily and has a huge bar tab that he can't pay off. Barry convinces the owner, Cha-Cha, as Zeb calls her, to let Zeb challenge her house band. If he wins, she will forgive his tab. If he loses, she gets their tour bus. I figured out the other movie. Mm Mm-hmm. He ev—I mean, I can't believe it took you this long. He eventually beats her house band, led by Brian Setzer, and sets off to find Tennessee O'Neill, who has lost Trixie, his love, and is working as a marriage counselor, coincidentally. While eating at a diner with Tennessee, the police find the bears and a chase ensues, but they escape. They eventually find Trixie St. Clair, who reconciles with Tennessee. Ted Betterhead, the last bear, is staunch against a reunion despite now being a wedding singer. Barry blames himself for the reunion tour's failure, but Fred, refusing to accept this, uh, knocks Ted out and takes him with them. After realizing that the people that love you most are your family, Barry leaves the bears and returns home. Barry left his backpack on the bus, and the bears find an old report that Barry had wrote describing the bears as his hero, so they head to his house, and Ted talks to Barry and tells him that they're going to do the show. Meanwhile, Reed Thimple, the banker looking to demolish uh, demolish Country Bear Hall, kidnaps the rest of the band and holds them captive. It turns out that he is actually, you guessed it, Benny Bogswaggle, and he's finally acting out his revenge on the Country Bears. Ted tracks them down and breaks them free. They arrive at the hall to find that Bogswaggle paid off Holland to not promote the show, but it turns out that Al had the hall ready and... They filled the place anyway, raising the money necessary to save Country Bear Hall. They perform the show and invite Barry into the band. For our listeners, before we get into this, the movie that you were thinking of with a similar plot. This is the Blues Brothers with stuffed animals. Yes, and I, of course, was thinking about Muppets. Seagull's Muppets. Yes, which it's, but here's the funny thing, though. Seagull's Muppets, by and large, takes a lot from the Blues Brothers in the, we're going to do a show to save this building. But did you ever, until today, connect the Muppets with the Blues Brothers? No, because there is enough separating them where they don't feel like the same movie. Exactly. And that was always kind of the Muppets thing is that they're going to put on a show. They do it for everything to solve whatever problem. So that's totally forgivable. This is derivative. This 
is the Blues Brothers with stuffed animals from the to- from the from the touring around on the trail, getting one person at a time, putting the band back together, breaking out into random musical numbers, one of which happens in a diner. This is the Blues Brothers. This is actually the perfect hybrid, though, because they did use Jim Henson's Creature Shop to do the bears. They did, and actually, albeit sort of awkward in terms of their appearance and and sort of um, their proportions... The animatronics are actually very good. I think the facial expressions, the way the eyes move, especially, they're really good in this movie. I'll give the movie that. Right, because I remember seeing the trailer when this movie was first coming out, and I honestly wasn't sure at the time if it was CGI or if it was animatronics. That's not to say that, wow, the animatronics look that good, they could pass for CGI. It's always better to do it practical, but... They are, my my issues with this movie are not with Jim Henson's creatures. I'll put it to you that way. Right. Starting with the opening scene. Okay, you get a concert at Country Bear Hall with all of the band on the stage. Basically, it's it's the scene from their farewell show that opens the film. I actually think this was a pretty strong start. It was. It's a good song. It's got great exposition through the newspaper articles and you see that the band broke up and flying them around like Kiss and stage diving worked surprisingly well with a country song. See, and I couldn't quite understand all of that. I couldn't understand why all the jumping. Just climbing up onto the highest thing they can and jumping onto the stage or flying around. So like, it makes sense when Gene Simmons does it because like that's a part of the kiss show i'm not i don't know i like i i feel like they were just like oh they're big fat bears let's let them jump around it'll be funny there's something about this that just doesn't work for me i think it was a little bit of that and i think that it was also that they were trying to set up and failed at setting this up that the bears had gotten too big for their fan base You know, when you think the country bears, and especially if you think to the attraction, it's this charming little show and they're playing to a local audience, it feels like. And I think that this film was trying to establish that the bears' popularity had become so big. Now they're selling out arenas and they're almost too famous for their own good. And that's ultimately what leads to their demise. Much like we've talked about, and, and it's just kind of funny because it's another country band. We love Zach Brown. And we have seen them play at Jones Beach, which is a fairly big amphitheater on Long Island. It's about a 13,000 yeah, 13, plus seat arena. Yeah. And we've also seen them play at City Field where the Mets play. And the better show was the one at Jones Beach because it was smaller. It was so much more intimate. They're not an arena band. And I feel like not that they're purposely paralleling Zach Brown's career here, because I think this was before way before Zach Brown had peaked. Um, you know, the same thing kind of applies, but we, we've seen that happen with bands. It's not just Zach Brown is that like eventually you kind of start to alienate your fan base when you become that big. Yeah. When you, when you exclusively tour football stadiums, for 80,000 people and you no longer do the 15,000 seat venue that you were playing three years ago, 
yeah, it drives people a little crazy. Right. And not everybody's going to be like Kiss, like the Stones, like Bon Jovi that can fill that arena and still make it work. Correct. So I think, yes, that sets them up. And what this also accomplishes is setting up Barry because he's got this Country Bears scrapbook with the newspaper clippings and the magazine clippings, and he's got the VHS tape that he's watching of the final performance that I kind of felt was like a, um, it was sort of like a behind the music that he was watching about them. So it sets up his fandom. So while I don't quite understand the jumping on stage and I thought that they were just like, oh, this will look funny and a kid will laugh at it, and that's kind of what we're going for here. I thought otherwise, in terms of setting up the characters and understanding what the story is, what you are about to watch for the next hour and 40 minutes, I thought, yeah, they did a really good job. Now we get to this dinner scene. And Barry is sitting with his parents and his brother, and they're basically pointing out blatantly, it's his brother more than it is anyone else, that you are clearly an adopted child. And the parents are trying to kind of brush that under the table, and they're trying to hide the fact that he's adopted. Meanwhile, he's a bear, and they're human beings. The first time I saw this movie, I rolled my eyes, and I was just like, this is really bad. This whole scene is really, really bad. Because... I'm sorry, but more than just the viewing audience, he's an animal, you're a human. It's very clear, you two did not make him. However, upon a second viewing, and this is a question, I'm going to pose it now. I don't want to answer it until the end. But I now am confused, and I think we're going to flesh this out as we go on here, whether that scene... And really, whether this entire movie is supposed to be serious or whether this entire thing is a satire. They kind of plant it here where you start asking that question. That's a really great point because my thought behind it, and we will answer it later, but my thought behind this scene from the jump was, wouldn't this movie have been so much more funny if everybody just played it straight and completely ignores the fact that he's a bear? Everybody except his brother. Exactly. It's it's not like Muppets where they obviously establish from the jumping off point that Walter is different. Right. But they fully, they totally bring it full circle And it's actually a major part of the plot because he wants to go off and be with the Muppets and feel like he belongs, Mm -hmm. which is sort of what Barry does start out to do. My bigger issue with this scene is that I feel like, well, the brother, the brother goes from tropey picking on him to straight up mean and definitely crosses the line. But I feel like that shouldn't have been enough to be Barry's motivation to run away. And not that I needed to see him like go to school the next day and get picked on there because he's different and he stands out. But I just feel like the brother being that horrible and that rude to him, it shouldn't have been enough. And and maybe that does play into your question a little bit because it's like, shouldn't the parents have stepped in here? 
Instead, they're just treating it like two regular brothers fighting and they're not addressing the real issue. Yeah. Ned the Head is hitting Stifler's little brother with the newspaper and that's about the most discipline they're doing in this entire scene. And Stifler's brother blocks it. Yeah, with a spoon. So he learns nothing. Correct. Yeah, I will agree with you. It, it They seem to jump right into him being very mean for almost no reason. And you're right, it's it's kind of unmotivated that he this would happen one time and that leads you to run off. But I guess we as the audience are supposed to know it's not the first time that it's happened. But they don't even have the throwaway line with the parents where they're rolling their eyes and say, not again. You know what I'm saying? Or or Barry overhears a conversation like at the top of the staircase, like, well, we have to tell him eventually. You know what I mean? Like there's there's nothing there. It's kind of just he was mean to me. So peace out. I'm gone. I'd rather go be with the bear. And I, I get it. We do have to get him on the road because like the Blues Brothers, that is the whole movie. So I, I get that we need to get moving. But at the same time, yeah, you did need that moment of, I've been lied to my whole life, and a little bit more reason for him to actually walk out that door. Correct. Now he gets on the bus, he heads off to Country Bear Hall. This set is amazing. I think it's spectacular. Oh, my. You don't think the Country Bear Hall set is impressive? Maybe for the mess hall at a summer camp. But but that's kind of what it's supposed to be, isn't it? Think about when we go see the Country Bear Jamboree. I, it is, it's a local little podunk concert hall in the middle of a field. Well, I guess that's that's my first issue with it, is that it is in the middle of nowhere. And I guess maybe they were kind of going for a Woodstock vibe, but I'm thinking the Country Bears, I'm thinking a little bit further south, a lot further south than Woodstock. I'm I'm thinking like Nashville or or just a place that's like a local gathering spot. There's nothing around here that that calls out, you know, center of the small town where everybody's going to hang out on a Friday night. Well, see, that doesn't bother me as much because I feel like part of them really making this look lodgy and woodsy is it is in the middle of a field, but you kind of feel like they're in bear country. And they never, like, they never move forward in, like, fleshing that out. But what I noticed upon the second viewing is that, and you, and you wonder where did these bears come from in, in a world of humans? Uh, why are they the only ones? But they're not, because as we're going around and seeing the bears as they've broken up in these kind of dead-end loser jobs that they have, there's a scene where you see a post, a postman, you know, postal employee, driving the little postal van, dropping off mail, and it's a bear. And when I saw that the first time, I'm thinking, okay, after they broke up, one of them became a mailman. That is not a member of the Country Bears. That is just a bear who's also working for the Postal Service, which leads me to believe that this is an entire bear world that they live in that's separate from where the humans live. I mean, obviously, they're on this planet, but it's it's their whole it's a whole other town. But they they never 
They never elaborate on that. We never see more of it. And I think that's kind of where they were going with that. I don't know if that's something that ended up on the cutting room floor because it feels like something that there should have been more to. Right. And then it would have felt more like the attraction because the attraction has a huge cast, first of all. And second of all, it also would have lent itself to the story more of how they went from this local hidden treasure to a major band that's playing on a huge stage because they had the support of their bear community and then they just became too popular and more and more people caught on. I would totally buy that, but I think you're right. I think a little bit more world building here would have gone a long way. Correct. Now you get introduced to Henry, you see Big Al, you get um, Thimple, the banker who is very much like Tex Richmond, the oil tycoon. It's just, it, it's a suit that wants your land, right? You've seen it a hundred times, played by Christopher Walken. We're going to talk more about the cast and the characters in a little while, but you get an awful lot going on here in fleshing out what's going to motivate the rest of the film, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel like that scene was derivative and I didn't feel like they rushed it. Like you said, this is derivative of the Blues Brothers in terms of an entire film, but I wasn't really getting that here. Not this early, at least. Right. In this case, I think it's almost a little bit unfair to compare it to the Muppets because this came first. But as far as comparing it to the Blues Brothers, this is where you have to deviate a little bit because this is something that is very specific to this film. Correct. Now, here's where it's the Blues Brothers for the rest of the movie. We are just traveling. We don't, I can't even say the country. We're just traveling. We don't know where, but we're traveling. Statewide, countywide, I don't know. But we're picking up the band, Elwood, the band. We're picking up the band from their loser jobs. Joliet, Jake, and I are going to put it back together. It's the same freaking movie. From this point moving forward, it's at this point that if I handed you a script and I said, hey, you want to see the original script for the Blues Brothers? You'd say, what did they change? It's the same thing. The only thing that does change, and I could totally do without it, is obviously we have to cut back to home and figure out what the rest of this family is doing while they're wondering what happened to Barry and we have to see that they care and they try to get him home. This is where I think we start to get the answer to your earlier question of whether or not this is supposed to be a satire because Bing is not really doing anything. The mom has a throwaway line of she bakes when she's nervous and she's just cranking out cookies and cakes and pies and Stifler's brother is totally living it up and He's enjoying being the only child and not having Barry around. And then you get these two chucklehead cops. Ham and cheats. I was really hoping that the name would be the worst thing about these two. This is like th th their entire, if you can even call it a story arc, is an insult to filmmaking. Their entire purpose is just be stupid. That, that's it. It's be stupid. That's all they are in this movie. No, and I get that it's supposed to be a little bit of comic relief when they're asking for Barry's description and 
the parents refuse to out and out say that he's a bear and Stifler's brother ends up with the description. But it's just awkward. The whole scene falls so flat. And I, that's where you need to start asking the question, do you, is this meant to be taken seriously or is it meant to be a joke? Exactly. Because Stifler's brother, because he's so meaningless in the movie, I actually don't even know his name, if I'm being honest with you. I'm just going to call him Stifler's brother. And I think partly because that's just how you know him anyway. Dex, I just remembered. And okay. Then, uh, I have to look up the actor's name. But so he's Dex. here. Just basically, they're like, well, he's got long hair. What are you talking about? He's got hair all over his body. Well, it's what he's a bit like he is getting so worked up. And then finally he goes, you know what? I'm going to go to my room and I'm not coming out till I'm 18. And he just storms off. I think if this is meant to be a joke. I think he actually did a really good job with this scene. But if it's meant to be taken seriously, this is just horrendous. Right. And this is where it completely falls apart because it has to be all or nothing. Either everybody's in on the joke that he's a bear and Barry's just going to go on living his life or everybody knows and they're trying to keep it from him. There's there's just too many questions. There's too many question marks here, and and I think that's where the movie does fail itself. Right, because half know or half seem to know and acknowledge that he's a bear, and the other half don't. And, and I get that that's where it's supposed to play to the strength of the country bears accepting him, but it just causes too much confusion when we're outside the tour bus or outside of bear country. What I will say, as derivative as it is from the Blues Brothers, I do like how they picked up each member of the band and where they landed. I think that was pretty funny, and I, I think it served as pretty good character development. It works because they did it in the <laughs> Blues Brothers! And they did it better! Well, of course they did it better, but... I believe that they would have gone and picked up Fred because he's working as a security guard now and he's still trying to stay in the music industry by being the bodyguard to this pop star, which we're going to talk about the music later, but that whole scene was completely unmotivated other than to go and pick up Fred. I think Zeb's honey addiction, that he's become this. this bar. See, that's what I'm saying. That's where it works for this movie, and that's where it's funny, even though we've seen it already. And, like, good for you, Disney. You went for it. A drinking problem in a band. Yes, they even had... Um, I mean, I love the set of Queen Latifah's bar, but they even had the neon signs, and they would change the name of Budweiser uh, to... Uh, I forget exactly what it was, but they, they they took recognizable logos and made them fitting for Bears and Honey. It, it was very funny. That was very funny, as is the scene with Christopher Walken, where he's just over and over again destroying Country Bear Hall with an anvil on a chain. Crush. Oh, no! Crush. Oh, no! I don't think he actually had a script. I think he was kind of just doing what Christopher Walken does. I agree, and it was everything that I never knew I needed. If you would have just put that on screen, Country Bear Hall! Oh, no! If it would have been that for 90 minutes, I would have been fine with the movie. Just him finding different ways to destroy it. 
Disney Plus, this is my plea to redeem this movie. Find me those bloopers. I want the walk-in cut. I want the whole, everything that you shot for that scene. I, I just want to see it straight out. Can we also point out that when they get to Tennessee O'Neill, who is working as a marriage counselor, and he is grief-stricken himself over the breakup between him and Trixie, I love that they put a Neil sweater on him. <laughs> I can't be the only person who picked up on this. I was actually thinking a Bill Cosby sweater, but I, I definitely prefer it as a Neil sweater. Now, you want to talk about a scene where everything just falls apart again? At the car At wash. At the car wash. Yeah. This scene, it, it's just bad. It's like, I don't have the words. It's just bad. Now, there's a common denominator here. When the movie gets really bad, there's two characters in it, and it's Ham and Cheats again. And amazingly, these two actors worked together like three other times after this film. I think most of them were animated films, but that is what we have to focus on here is that this is not an animated film. So putting two human beings through a car wash is not funny. It's not funny because no human being, as stupid as they are, intentionally opens a window and climbs out of it while the car is moving through a car wash. This is the, the first point where I thought that this is an insult to filmmaking. This scene. I know I said it earlier, but that's my overall summation for these two characters. But this is the first time it really hit home for me. They are too stupid for their own good. Awful. I'd go so far as to say, hmm, who's dumber, them or Hollywood from Hocus Pocus? I you hate them so much. I hate them so much. I actually think the morons in Hocus Pocus are worse because that movie is is meant to be taken seriously and this you're on the fence about. Right, and they're high school bullies. These are cops. You have to at least be some kind of intelligent to become a cop, so I'll give them that much. I mean, yeah. Because you don't know if this is real. Is this real or is it a satire? You don't know. So I, this one, as bad as they are, get a pass but just barely. I'm talking <laughs> barely. like... Barely. Barely. I'm just talking it's a photo finish and it's almost <laughs> too close to call. The only thing that I do like about this scene is that it establishes whether or not it is a fake mustache. Yes. Because I was wondering that the whole time and I'm like, is, is this something that you did for your character? Yeah, because Diedrich Bader... He's funny. He's funny. We know him from the Drew Carey show. He's, he's fantastic. He's great. But I was wondering if it was something that he was doing to like build himself up in his mind as a serious cop or if it was really bad production value. And you get the answer that, no, he's just wearing a fake mustache. That so actually makes the character more interesting for me. Yeah. We don't know why he's doing it. But again, this is the... And I'm repeating myself, and I don't particularly care. <laughs> is it a satire? Because think about movies like Super Troopers, where they all have the quote-unquote cop mustache. And this comes after. So it's like, is he trying to fit into the cop trope? 
they never answer the question because if it's a satire, you don't have to answer the question. We already know it on our own by being an intelligent movie-going audience. So, again, it because there's no clear line one way or the other, it leaves too many questions. And I think that goes back to what you said in the beginning about why do we have these bears jumping around and flying on stage where I had initially said, okay, maybe it's to establish how big that they've become. But I think that maybe it would have been better to draw that line and have the bears be this band that Barry came across and he's grown up on their music instead of having them be a worldwide sensation and humans be a part of that fandom, I think it would have been much more clear cut if humans had no idea who they were and Barry was just going off to find this band that he knew about in in his country and maybe maybe that's where his origins were from because that's something that never really gets answered either. I thought the way that they were setting this up was that one of the country bears was like his long lost father. And that's why he ended up getting adopted, which would also be kind of like a, you know, a big rock band trope that they fathered a couple of children and they have no idea that they exist. Yeah, but then nobody cares. You have no motivation for the film. So some kid is putting together a band that he likes. There's no there's nothing there's nothing at stake here. The whole point of this is that they're going to lose Country Bear Hall. It's the entire motivation for putting the band back together. No, I'm not saying if Barry put the band together, but I'm saying if he was going, if he knew that that was happening, if if you just remove the element altogether that the humans know who the Country Bears are, mm-hmm. and this is just a small local problem. I yeah okay I get you. Um well. We move on here in <clears throat> putting the band back together. And we get a really good cameo from Elton John. Elton John is in this movie. He was also in Spice World, so let's let's temper our expectations a touch. Oof. But he played himself in Spice World. Well, he plays himself, he plays in himself this here. <laughs> um, and we find out that Ted is living above Elton John's garage because... Where is he now? He's in a in a velour shiny suit in a wedding band. While not in a wedding band, where did we see the guys in the really cheesy suits playing gigs that are far beneath them? That's right. We saw it in the Blues Brothers. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> what else what else can I say at this point? Nothing. There's there's nothing else to be said. I I don't know why when I initially saw Ted singing in the jacket, I thought maybe him and Elton John had become a duo or that they were partners or something. Like they were doing the face-to-face tour like Billy Joel and Elton John would do for a while. Exactly. No. And to me, that would have been a better film. It would have been better. No, he's just down on his luck living, abo- living above Elton John's garage, which I actually could buy in this case. The other thing that I could buy, because I actually don't hate it, 
at this point, what the hell else do we have to lose? Is the bog swaggle twist. Oh my god. Yo, you don't like this. I don't hate this twist. Because you need something more than just the suit that wants your land. There there has to be something else that happens. And honestly, there are a lot of things in this movie that lead to dead ends. The fact that they map out how they got their big break by beating Bogswaggle. Bogswaggle's talent is stupid with the armpit noises, and that's how he performs. That within itself is just dumb and lazy to me. But the, you, the fact that you put that in the movie to set up their entire career, you had to pay off on it somewhere. And I don't hate that this is how they chose to pay it off. No, what I do hate about it is the armpit farts, to yeah. be clear. But as far as this being a story of revenge, yeah, I, I think that's the way to go because there's nothing like sweet, sweet oil, see? You don't yeah. have that yeah. kind of motivation here. So... I'm all for that. I just wish that we wouldn't have resorted to armpit farting. It's amazingly the least egregious thing that this movie does. And I can't believe that. And you squandered Elton John. That's the other thing, to take it back to Elton John for a moment. I mean, I get it. I get that we wanted the star power. And I'm, I'm never unhappy with an Elton John cameo. But I'm surprised they didn't pick another country star like they got willie nelson okay fine but it's like what is elton john doing living in bear country that you're renting from him yeah and why clef exhibit like i mean the movie crystal the movie's dated folks i i let's just i i am gonna say that the movie listen the movie doesn't hold up um it is dated but you're right. I don't know why they didn't lean really more into the Nashville and get that Garth Brooks. That's who I was or that thinking. that Toby Keith, right? They they don't... I mean, and I understand they're trying to say that this band was so good that they they bridged genre gaps. I, I get it. But it just seems like the net that they cast out was a little too wide and they didn't focus in enough on what they were known for in terms of like being, um, you know, an inspiration to another artist. Right. Even Tim McGraw. Tim McGraw does everything. Yeah. He'd he'd have been the best actor in this movie. (laughs) It's true. The only thing that I can think of is touring schedules and, and that's, you know, the biggest thing that they were up against. I guess... Speaking of uh, casting characters, I, I guess now now is the good time to to start discussing some of the casting characters that are the ensemble for this. I don't know what it is anymore. Movie. All right, where do you want to start? Walking. Uh, I yeah, want to start was, with walking. What a dumb question. I mean, yeah, it's Christopher Walken. I I love him no matter what he does, even this. Yeah, he can do no wrong. I mean, he, he was in this, and he did well. Like, he's manic enough. He's crazy enough. The only other person who I could have seen doing this and pulling it off was Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage. Tim Curry could have done it, but you kind of seen it. I would love to see Nicolas Cage in this. Listen, at this point, you're just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. Why not? The anvil scene in particular is what made me think Nicolas Cage, but I am more than happy with what we got. I am just dying to know if he knew what he was getting himself into. Mm-hmm. Steven Tobolowsky, bing, Ned the Head, 
plays Barry's father, Norbert. We've also seen him in Don't Look Under the Bed. So Disney has gone back and they've taken from that well a few times. I I don't think he's bad. I think he's just doing what they asked him to do. It is very much typecasting, though, because Don't Look Under the Bed was the same thing. Just play the straight man, the ignorant father. Like, he didn't even try to have, like, the awkward Danny Tanner heart-to-heart with his kids in either of those films. Yeah, it never happens. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Eli... Um, Marenthal, I think is how you spell, uh, pronounce it. This is Dex. This is Stifler's little brother. I think he's probably the best actor in the movie because he's the only one that's in on the joke with the rest of us, and he seems to pull it off. He is my inner monologue for the entire film. Yeah, I I would say that he's probably the most relatable character, but he gets a strike against him because he has not one, but two Limp Biscuit posters on his side of the room. I told you this movie was dated. Not one, two. One was too much. I want to get into... I don't want to talk about ham and cheats. It's not worth it. No, I don't want to get angry. I want to get into the bears. Okay. Um, I want to get into the bears. Barry is voiced by I See Dead People, Haley Joe Osmond. And you know what? I actually really liked him. Really nice job. Yeah. I thought that he gave this character an innocence, and I think he gave him a lot of heart. And charm. I really liked him, actually. I did too. No, and you know what? It goes to show that he's not a one-trick pony with I See Dead People. He was a cute child actor, but he was actually able to pull off the voice artist work that was needed because sometimes that is more difficult because you're not seeing, you're not emoting, you're not seeing facial expressions. It's all, it all has to come through your voice. And I think he did a great job. Mm -hmm. Diedrich Bader has dual roles in this because he's not only Officer Cheats, but he's also Ted Betterhead. And I thought that he did fine as Ted Betterhead. You'd never really understand, though, why Ted is so against putting this band back together. There, there's an argument in a field where he's like, head in the clouds, drinking problem, cry baby, I kept the band together while the rest of you, you never practice, you never this... So I guess we are to believe that he just became frustrated with being the level-headed one, but they never elaborate more on exactly what caused a breakup. There was never a fight. There was never an argument. It's just he decided it was time to stop, and they did it. Agreed. We need more of a reason why the brothers weren't speaking. Mm -hmm. And John Hyatt provided his singing voice, and John Hyatt actually wrote a lot of the music for this film. Candy Ford plays Trixie St. Clair. She's fine. I mean, she she has a bigger role. I mean, she doesn't really have a huge role in this other than being a singer in the band and being Tennessee's motivation to kind of like, I guess, better himself or get better. And it explains why he's such a crybaby because they're so heartbroken. But they never really delve into that either. It's just they broke up. She was fine 
for a very, very secondary character. What also makes her a little bit confusing, and I mean, yes, she is a secondary character. We don't need that much for plot. But because we see her performing with them at the end, I didn't think she was part of the original band, but I was like, wait, are are you like a studio musician who sometimes toured with them? Were you a part of this band? Like, you know, what? I, I needed a little bit more context because that would have given Tennessee a bigger reason to be so brokenhearted if she had, you know, g- give me like a she broke off and went solo. Right. Or something like that. So it was just kind of weird to see her come back and play with them when we don't know what her role was initially other than being Tennessee's Achilles heel. And the way that they find her, they check into a random hotel and they don't look at the sign outside the hotel that says one night only Trixie St. Clair. By chance, we just happen to be here. The entire thing is contrived. Absolutely. Singing voice, Bonnie Raitt. This movie has star power behind it. And I, I, don't, I don't understand why if it's taken seriously. If it's a satire, it makes sense. James Gammon is Big Al. James Gammon, Lou from Major League. And he's basically just the same guy. He's dry. He's funny enough. I have no problems with James Gammon in this movie. And like you had said before, I like that we got more background characters that weren't a part of the band, but we're populating bear country. Mm -hmm. We have Brad Garrett as Fred Betterhead. Brad Garrett is good in everything. So Brad Garrett is good in this. That's all I have on him. He was one of the things that I liked most about this movie. I do like the character. I love Brad Garrett voicing him. That that was as good as you're going to get in a film like this. And I think this was uh, very early on when Brad Garrett started turning over to voice. He had done a little bit in the 80s. He was actually the voice of Hulk Hogan when Hulk Hogan had his Saturday morning cartoon. There but is the- no reason I would have ever known that. I did, but then, yeah, well, the thing was, then he he became so popular with Everybody Loves Raymond. Right, and then I guess he started transitioning back to where he came from, because it's like, not that I forget about Raymond, but his voice is so unique. Mm -hmm. I, I love the roles that he's done as a voice actor more than anything else. Yeah. Toby Huss is Tennessee O'Neill. Toby Huss, who played Artie on Pete and Pete, is Tennessee O'Neill and what is the world coming to might be the most dislikable member of this band. Really? He breaks out and cries over Trixie for absolutely no reason all of the time. See, that doesn't bother me as much as Ted does, honestly, and his resistance. He's the one piece that they needed, and everybody had to bend over backwards to get him back. My dislike for Ted has more to do with he's mean for the sake of. Yes. This just gets annoying, which really crushes my soul like a soda can underneath your heel because the singing voice for Tennessee O'Neill is Don Henley. You have no idea how much it pains me to dislike this character 
when one of the musicians that I respect the most in the history of music has lent his voice to the soundtrack as this character. Well, if it makes you feel better, they obviously got their cameo when they are listening to Trixie and Tennessee sing Don Henley and Bonnie Raider sitting at the bar having a grand old time. Yeah. I, I love that scene. I wanted to live in there a little bit more. Yeah. And then he says they were better than the Eagles and a part of me died inside. And that was funny. Couldn't be revived. Steven Root plays Zeb. And Steven Root, like a Brad Garrett, is basically just good in everything that he does. So I have no problem with him here. I think Zeb might be my favorite bear. Because I love the drinking angle. It's hysterical. It is hysterical. And I love even everything down to his wardrobe. He's got the the denim vest and the hat and the yeah. long necklace. I, I think he's probably the most fully fleshed out of all the bears. The only thing that would have killed me a little bit more is if I found out that Charlie Daniels was the fiddle that they play over because he's the fiddler in the battle against Brian Setzer. Like, if they would have gotten Charlie Daniels to just play the fiddle and that's what they laid on top in the soundtrack, again, a part of me would have died a little bit more. So a part of me lives knowing that that's not the case here. I'm wondering if that's what they tried to go for because you're right. You you think fiddle and you naturally think of Charlie Daniels, but I'm wondering if that was just a cameo that didn't happen. MC Ganey plays Rhodey, and this is as typecast as you get because MC Ganey in this movie to me, I mean, look, we know if you've seen him before, he's very much a character actor. He's the same character here as he was when he played Swamp Thing in Con Air. It's the long hair rebel. In this case, he's driving a bus. In in the case of Con Air, he's flying the plane. He's literally the same guy twice. And he's got a Camilla. Oh, I mean a chicken. Again, this came first, but I, I was like, of all things, a chicken. That is so specific. It came before the Muppets movie, but... The chickens were Gonzo's things since like the 70s. All right. I think we got to get into the soundtrack here. You get the opening song is Let It Ride. It's a fun intro. This is that jumping around the stage song that we mentioned earlier. It's an earworm. And I think as far as music is concerned, it's a strong start to the movie. I agree. Um, it's definitely a catchy song, especially for me, who is somebody who doesn't love country music. This is like a country rock hybrid that I could get down with. Um, and I think it's good as far as setting the tone in the world that this is the song that everybody loves. This is their encore. This is what they're coming to see the show for. I think that all works. Um, like I said, the flying around, the stage diving it works surprisingly well with this song, even if it is too over the top. Um, what impresses me about this too is the production value in this opening sequence is, you know, obviously they've got these giant bears. They do go in for the close-ups of them playing the instruments, which I thought was really impressive. The lighting design is amazing. And I think the editing is wonderful too. It feels every bit like 
you know, a concert that you'd be watching from home where maybe they're airing it live and they're switching between cameras or a music video, like a concert that was taped for a music video. And they actually did have a different editor doing the musical numbers in the rest of the film. So that is why you have that different pacing and that different feel that feels more like a rock video. Where Nobody Knows My Name is the next song. I think you hear the... You kind of hear the Bears version of it and it fades into Barry singing it on his own with his guitar. I mean, this is what gives the entire movie its motivation. So this very much works, especially where they put it in the movie. And especially how Barry sings it, too. That's not Haley Joel Osment singing. It's actually uh, a little girl that they got to do the mm-hmm. singing voice. But, um, yeah, I, I like that they they toned down the song and made it more melancholy because he's singing it himself. You get Crystal. Who? Crystal. Yeah, I heard you. Uh, Sings a song called The Kid in You. This is where Fred jumps up and starts playing his harmonica and stage dives into nothing. This is where the movie really starts to feel dated to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine in terms of a song. It's fine. I feel like they were trying to stretch it a little too much where they're trying to connect being that inner child with wanting to be a musician, which is what Fred always wanted to be because we know that his father gave him his harmonica. But at best, it's a stretch. It's interesting you say that because that was not even something that I picked up on. I mean, obviously, you know, we see the harmonica drop. You know that he's going to get up on stage or plant himself in this music video or whatever is happening. It's so jarring to me. Like you said, the movie is obviously dated. But I feel like this whole scene just doesn't jive. I buy the security thing. I almost wish that Fred was maybe working at another venue and popped up during like an actual performance because I feel like trying to plant the pop star music video shoot does not work at all. It's it's the song. It's stylistically what is happening. And I'm wondering if they were also trying to go for another bigger cameo here. And I don't mean this is insulting to Crystal Harris, but. I have no idea who she is. I couldn't tell you one song that she sang. I don't know if she was like maybe part of one of these girl groups that was trying to go solo. But the weird thing is they're trying to have this pop singer moment for her. And she's got this dark hair, almost like what Christina Aguilera did when she got so famous and like didn't want to be anymore. And then she got dirty. Mm hmm. I'm like, who are you? I, I don't buy that she ever had enough clout to want to do that. So I'm wondering if it was just because they didn't, you know, they couldn't get like a Britney or Christina. But like, I'm surprised they didn't try for like a Mandy Moore who uh, now she's huge because of this. Of This is us. But at the time she had like one or two hits out. Even Jessica Simpson. She's from Texas. I would totally have bought her in this situation. Um, but it was just so distracting because... I'm just kind of like, who is this person? Now we get to the song that takes place in, I think, the most fun scene in the movie. I'm only in it for the honey. 
which is this duel between, for all intents and purposes, the Brian Setzer Orchestra and Zeb. This is a fun song. It's a good song. I love the Brian Setzer cameo. I think it works here. I love the set. Everything about, we talked about it before, this is such a good scene that this is one of the few times in the film, upon the first viewing, when I didn't know exactly what we were watching, where it cracked a smile on my face. This is probably my favorite scene in the whole film, and if not for Elton John, Brian Setzer would be my favorite cameo. Well, no, because Don Henley and Bonnie Raitt are pretty great, too. I do love everything about it, though. I mean, we talked about it before. The Honey Addiction, very clever, but I love this set. I think it's totally relatable. I think it's the kind of bar that you would find, you know, that looks like a dive on the outside, but inside it's the best local hang, and you've got a great bar band that plays there, and you've got you know, a great bartender in Queen Latifah. It's it's a place that you want to hang out. And I think that it, it amazes me how good they painted this little world in a five or 10 minute scene, not even 10 minutes. And they failed to do that with the rest of this film. If everything else was like this scene, this would have been infinitely better. Um, I think they also kind of missed because this could have been a huge plot point too. Like the battle is great, but... Zeb is trying to win to pay off of his bar tab. Why not make it so that they do a little fundraiser and start raising some of the money back to buy back the hall? Um, no. I mean, you don't have Ted back yet. And I'm kind of just spitballing here because, yeah, I, I don't know how we would tie up the rest of the movie just based on they got some of the money that was needed. But I feel like for such a powerful scene and because he's going so hard on the fiddle, like there's just so much more at stake than just like, all right, you have to pay your tab off and what? You sleep in the bar. So clearly she doesn't, you know, she's taking no action to really kick you out of there. So why do you really owe her this money? A clean start. Because then he can just run up another tab. If you think about it. Because now he owes her nothing. If he wanted to run up another tab, he could just do it. Yeah, but it's just not enough. Kick it into gear. This is a very fun number. This is a very fun scene. I wish someone had told Jennifer Page that. And we never saw her again. But folks, we saw a diner scene. I'm going to say it again. Don't care. Repetitive. Don't care. In the Blues Brothers with Aretha Franklin. With Aretha Franklin. N nothing against you, Jennifer Page. But it was with Aretha Franklin. No, and that's exactly it. If you're going to rip off this scene, you have got to hit it out of the park. And I mean, you're not going to get that caliber of Aretha Franklin. I mean, the only person really that could match that as far as star power in this film, is Bonnie Raitt. And th this is not where you have her. But all of that aside, my biggest issue with this scene is that you've got such a fun, upbeat song. The number is really cool. Yeah. Even though they ripped it off, I like what they did with the diner. I like that they moved the booths. I think that was actually really cool and something that we've never seen before. And they kind of gave her like a stage and a catwalk to go down. It was, it was well done. Right. 
but her face is frozen. She has no energy. She doesn't look like she's enjoying herself. She doesn't look like she's matching the the level of energy that this song requires at all. She looks like she took a Prozac before she had to get on stage. She may have had to. I mean, she was a part of this cast. <laughs> so I kind of give her a pass for that. Listen, the rock legends that were doing the Prozacs, we're going to do it whether they were in this movie or not anyway. So I kind of give her a pass. Though I, 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 I see what you mean, and I agree with you that she's not matching the energy level per se, but again, not the most egregious thing in the movie. No, but I'm still left wondering, was it her... Or, or did the director just let this go? Like, how do you not do another take? Or, or like, these were her best takes, really? I don't believe it. I don't know. Can Love Stand the Test is the next song here, and it's the best song in the movie, I think. One of the most underrated songs in the Disney canon. Like, this... This deserves a lot more love than it has because it got buried in this movie. Yeah, there. it's a shame that it got buried in this movie. This is a duet between Bonnie Raitt and Don Henley. It's like the one from Muppet Treasure Island. Yes. It, with Piggy and Kermit. They're singing it dangling from a string upside down, which kills the whole mood, but the song is great. Mm-hmm. I, I got nothing else. It's, it's, it's really good. Now, you do get the song that Elton John wrote for the film... For about 20 seconds. It's called Friends. It's very quick. Here's my problem with it. It's not that it's a bad song, but when you get Elton John to write a song for a movie, I should get more than 20 seconds of it. The only the, the other thing is that it is completely derivative because I know you have a problem with scenes that do this. When the song lyrics should basically say, here's what you're watching on the screen... I don't need Elton John's voice telling me they're friends again. We've already seen them all kiss and make up. It's too on the nose. It's not like Can You Feel the Love Tonight, where you're watching Simba and Nala on screen with this really beautiful ballad playing behind them, and you're watching this happen. This this is the equivalent of, instead of Can You Feel the Love Tonight... They changed the lyrics to, they're falling in love right now in front of your eyes. Exactly, exactly. It's it's different when it creates ambiance versus exposition. And uh, unless it's like your main character singing it and singing about what they want, which we have learned from Howard Ashman, you don't need it to move your plot forward. Mm-hmm. Straight to the Heart of Love is the last song in the film. It's the song that you see at the end where they finally put on this reunion show it's the bears are all back together they have Barry in there with them it's a really really good song and all of these and the star power behind this this is where they really harmonize well with Bonnie Raitt and John Hyatt and Don Henley this is where they really shine through in this song in particular I agree. I really like the song on its own. Like if if you played it for me and I had no idea that it was part of this film, I would probably appreciate it even more. Um, but I, I think it's a good punctuation mark for the end of the film. I think it displays all of the vocals nicely, like you said. Um, and it, it's a good scene. And then you get 
you're wrong. You did see Jennifer Page one more time, and it's a cutaway in this scene. Oh, when she's then got her, you never hear from her again. Yeah, she's got her country bear shirt on, and she's clapping, and she's a part of the crowd. Hip hip hooray! Hip hip hooray! Because we're done. The movie's <laughs> over. What? Uh, all right, I- I'll bat lead off on this one. This movie does not hold up. I said it earlier. There's just a lot of references that are outdated. There are some... the Don Henley's, Bonnie Raitt's, Elton John's, they're all immortal. Those, those will never be dated. Some of the pop star uh, cameos that you get here, again, nothing against Jennifer Page. Crush was a good song in the 90s, but Crush was a good song in the 90s. Crystal was kind of like... Crystal, if you ever hear this, I'm sorry. You are like one of those performers at MGM Studios where you're not a has-been, you're a never-was, but we know what you were supposed to be. Yes. Okay? And I'm sorry if that's harsh, but it's true, and I'm sorry. I don't know why she's going to hear this, that I feel the need to apologize so much. But... The thing is, there's just too much here that feels really, really dated. The frosted tips on Stifler's brother, the Limp Biscuit posters. But more than that, you already know what it is a complete ripoff of. Living in the world where this is a serious movie, this is a horrendous waste of talent, and we are lucky that we got Pirates of the Caribbean out of Disney. There are not a ton of Easter eggs in this movie. I thought there would be more. So it kind of just feels like you pointed at something at the Magic Kingdom and said, that, we're going to turn that into a movie. If this is a satire, this film is brilliant. And it's funny. And if it's not, it is one of the worst films we've ever watched for this podcast. It's one of the worst films I've ever watched for the sake of watching a movie. And the problem I have is that t- right now, we watched the movie twice this week for the purpose of recording this episode. I had seen it once prior to that. I've now seen the movie three times, and I don't know if it's real. I don't know if it's a satire. There's no clear line. And if there's no clear line... I don't think that this was a brilliant attempt at keeping you guessing. It probably just means that it's really, really bad. And if they try now, twenty now 19 years later, at the time of this recording, almost 20 years later, to come out and say, no, that's how we meant it to be. It's like how Tommy Wiseau now talks about The Room and he calls it a dark comedy. And that's not what it is. You made a bad movie and you're trying to cover it up now because people are talking about it. It's got rewatchability if you want a train wreck. The songs are great. They kind of started like doing the self-deprecating Muppet thing, but not entirely. So I think while I'm not totally sure, I'm hedging my bets on this was supposed to be serious and therefore this movie's awful. I, it's, it takes a lot. You got it. It takes a second to like kind of process everything I just said. 
to answer the question that you posed before, I do agree. It's not a satire. This was supposed to be taken seriously. And I think that that does come through in the star power that they got behind it. Well, that's not true, though, because the Muppets get big star power and they're very satirical. Yeah, but you know that about the Muppets. That's the point. You know what they are. If all if you say the Muppets want you in a movie, you know what that kind of humor is. It's it's no different than saying like, hey, Judd Apatow's got a project he wants to attach you to. You don't even need to read the script. You just know what the movie's going to be. Right. And unfortunately, the Country Bears don't have that same sort of brand that you just know. No. <laughs> no. But no, I, I do agree with you. It was definitely supposed to be a serious film. And I think by drawing that line in the sand, by making it a clear cut satire where everyone was in on the joke, I think it would have done wonders for this film. Because otherwise, between the star power and the music, I actually don't think it was that bad. Most of my issues are rooted in the story. To a point where I feel like the music and the cast redeem so much, I actually don't know that this deserves a what the February. Sean's face right now. <laughs> I've said so much worse than this that have made your eyes bug out of your head. This is nothing. Today. You've said worse today. <laughs> I get why you're surprised because story-wise, this film does deserve one of my tongue lashings. It really does. But I see what they tried to do. I see where they tried to be charming. I think some of the characters are really good because they are elevated by the cast. Um, I think it tried to be funny and it definitely failed. Um but I also think that part of the issue is that I am trying to separate this film from what I thought it was going to be. This is very much like The Haunted Mansion where you took the attraction and you took a couple of lines and tried to build a whole film off of them. Whereas if you had just stuck to your source material a little bit more, you could have made a much better film. I, I actually don't think this is even Haunted Mansion bad. I think Haunted Mansion is way worse. But that also might be personal bias because that is my favorite ride and there's so much to get wrong with it or, or so much that they did do wrong to it. Um, so part of that is just having the Haunted Mansion on a pedestal. But here, I think if they had leaned into the fact that it's the Country Bear Jamboree and made it more of a variety show and focused more on these different groups of characters. I mean, look, did I think I was going to sit down and have a whole song devoted to all the guys that turn me on, turn me down? No, because every time I hear that at the Country Bear Jamboree, I sit there and I go, what the what? Like that is a what the February for me mm -hmm. every single time. But I feel like if we had focused more on all of these different bears trying to put on the show, and maybe that is too derivative of the Muppets, I think it still would have made for a better film. 
Well, we're interested in knowing what you have to say. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the Week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet. Whether you're looking for Disney stationery, perhaps some art or home decor, maybe you need custom invitations for a special event that you're doing, Kelly has you covered. I mean, listen, I really dig her stuff. I think Chip and Joanna... They've got competition in the Disney realm. Same. I wish we had discovered her invitations before we got married. Yeah, we would have used them for sure. And if, I mean, that's a seal of approval right there. And, you know, listeners of Monoreal do get a 10% discount uh, with the code Monoreal10 at checkout. Be sure to check out Kelly and all she's got to offer at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Sean hates this phrase, but I'm five and I'm going with it. Let's talk iridescent weenies. Only on a Disney podcast could you say the phrase iridescent weenies and most people don't look at you with side eye. I, I mean, think I, that I might do. be how I refer to you in public from now on. Please don't. Definitely at the parks. Oh, God, no. <laughs> oh, man. Disney 50. Let's talk about Disney 50. We got some concept art this week. Now, I think there's controversy here only in the term the four icons. Okay? This isn't that controversial. The Muppets are controversial right now. This isn't so bad. It depends on how you look at this. So, you just had a major renovation done at Cinderella Castle. Fine. I will actually say this because I was very much against... Cindy's new paint job there but I think with the artwork they released now I can kind of see what they were doing and I think that this was all done with intention for the 50th colors the gold bunting looks amazing on it it looks spectacular so each of the icons is getting what they are calling beacons of magic they're describing them as shimmering optical elements so in other words Cinderella Castle is going to look like it is covered in pixie dust, and the Tree of Life will look like it is inhabited with fireflies. I can buy that. I'm very excited to see what Spaceship Earth is going to look like, because I actually I think it's going to look the best of all of them. Here's where a bit of controversy does come up, though. When it comes to Hollywood Studios, they are decorating the Hollywood Tower Hotel and categorizing it as the icon. This, I'm not going to call it questionable, but I'm going to say it it asks and yet also answers a lot of questions at the same time, for me personally. When the park opened in the MGM days, although it is still MGM to me and to you. It will always be. The Chinese Theater and the Earful Tower were sort of the dual icons of that park. Really, it was more about the Chinese Theater than it was the Earful Tower. Now, you have the the uh, the movie theater, the Chinese Theater, that has undergone a major renovation. It was years in the making. The Sorcerer's Hat is not blocking it anymore. Which is fine. It never should have been there to begin with. A. 
And yet, you are now shifting focus to the Hollywood Tower Hotel, calling it an icon of the park, when there has been a lot of discussion in regards to what exactly happens with that attraction once Disney can start doing more with Marvel in Orlando. We know that they switched the Tower of Terror at DCA, and now it's Mission Breakout. There were rumors that they were going to do something similar in Orlando. I think that if you are setting that as the focal point and you are now giving that icon status, I think what that basically says is that the Hollywood to- the, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror is here to stay, which is fine with me. I can't help but laugh because for me, it's like, did we really need to call out yet again that this park has an identity crisis? So let's put all the eggs in the Hollywood Tower basket. I think you kind of have to if they are making this the icon of the 50th anniversary. And I mean, they have been incorporating more and more projections onto it, especially around the holidays, as we've seen over the past couple of years. Right. And okay, it's a given. It's the tallest building in the park. So there's a lot more that you can do with it. Um, I'm sure part of it, too, is that, you know, when Fantasmic lets out, once that comes back, yeah, you've got everything projected onto the tower, and then boom, 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 everybody can make a pretty easy exit, especially now with the Skyliner, too. I'm wondering if they give us another park exit that gets you closer to the Skyliner. They could. On that side. Yeah. Just to make it kind of easier on the traffic flow. Um, but anyway, that's that's a whole bunch of logistics that I didn't really intend to get into, but um, I... I don't know. I mean, I, I think that they're definitely drawing a line in the sand as far as what is what the icon is going to be. But at the same time, I don't think that they're going to do the mission breakout overlay. Sorry to say, I know that you love your guardians. Um, I think you still have to keep things separate because you have the dual galaxy's edge, but that was something that under Iger they said they were never going to do is keep duplicating these rides because if you have them in one park, why would you go and travel to another one? Sure. I think we also have to consider what's coming down the pike, what we know they have on deck with the Avengers campus. We still don't necessarily know where that's going to be in Florida. We know where it's going to be in Disneyland. Um So I wouldn't rule the tower out for that. I mean, do I think they're going to turn it into Stark Tower? No, but we're running out of room there. So I'm wondering if that becomes the Avengers section and they do start utilizing that for something with the Avengers campus. They very well could. But I think those are questions. Obviously, the restrictions with the Universal contract, these are not questions that we can answer anytime soon. But I feel like if you are considering that to be the icon... It's kind of, it's sort of set in stone. I feel like it's there to stay. I, I don't know that you can necessarily change it if you are if you are giving it icon status. I also think, now we haven't been on the ride yet. We will get on the ride for the first time this upcoming November. But I kind of wonder how exactly they are viewing Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway because that was a massive renovation. 
you took away a beloved ride in the great movie ride. Obviously, listeners of our show, if you get through the first 10 seconds of the program each and every week, know how much we loved that attraction. We are not the only ones. You kind of put your eggs in one basket when you go and you do something like that. It is a major... It would be like if you changed... And not not made alterations. I'm talking a retheming. The Jungle Cruise or Pirates of the Caribbean or even Space Mountain at the Magic Kingdom. It, it would be like if you completely rethemed Spaceship Earth. We know it was going to undergo a renovation, but I'm saying you completely change its identity. That's kind of what you did in studios, and I'm surprised that they are not making that the focal point, if that makes any sense. Right, especially because they made such a big deal about Mickey and Minnie have never had their own ride. We're going to give them their own ride why wouldn't you just gear everything towards our state or Disney staples, not just park staples, but I mean, it's Mickey and Minnie for crying out loud. Yeah. I mean, their fingerprints are all over the entire company and it is the first thing you see when you pass through the gates. I mean, following in the tradition of you get through the gates at Epcot, you see spaceship earth, you get through the gates of magic kingdom. And once you pass under the train station, you see Cinderella's castle. When you do get to, you know, really your first big visual in Animal Kingdom is the Tree of Life. So for all intents and purposes, it is the theater. So I'm just very surprised that they are not decorating that even more. Now, it could be... Well, no, that's not necessarily true either because I was about to say it could be because they are going to do more projections on the Chinese theater. They do projections on Cinderella's castle every night, and yet that's still got its beacon of magic. So I'm just curious to know, as we get closer to the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, if they elaborate further on why they chose the Hollywood Tower Hotel over the Chinese theater. It may not be a question that they ever answer. Well, we may not be able to answer any of those questions, but... I do have some questions that I can answer. If you are interested in booking your Disney 50 trip, we are now able to book through 2022. So if you are thinking of coming to see these iridescent weenies, definitely get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. And some more exciting news. We have a contest running this week. In partnership with our friends at the Hidden Mickey Supply Co., we have a Monoreal Radio t-shirt as well as this really fantastic and very festive four-leaf clover that's got the Mickey silhouette in there. It's going to look awesome. Taylor and Heather definitely hooked it up with creating straw charms of our monorail radio logo. And I absolutely love those. But I hate to part with this one and give it away. Uh, yeah. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's going to look awesome on your beverage of choice on St. Patrick's Day. So there's a very easy way for you to enter to win. All you have to do is share the contest post. We're going to post it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just make sure that we're tagged and that you share it so that we see that you did so. And 
that's it. You're entered. You will have until Monday, March 1st at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in the year 2021. Let me just put that one out there as well. And we are going to announce the winner on the show the next day. So you have until Monday, March 1st. We're going to announce the winner on Tuesday, March 2nd. And we were very excited I agree with you. It's it's. I'm a little sour to give it away because I like it a lot, but it's going to be an awesome prize. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate on your podcast platform of choice. Of course, follow us on that social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and TikTok as well. You can always email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. And if you needed links to any of the social media, or the podcast, you can do so online at our home at monorealradio.com. Thank you guys again so much. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.